Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, encouraging you to listen to this teaching on the Reformation by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry serving in the Midwest. He has a lifelong passion for understanding the Reformers and the impact they made through the Gospel. His fascination for these subjects was fueled even further by the opportunity to take a Reformation tour of Germany in 2017, the 500th anniversary of its beginning under Martin Luther. You can find all of Paul's ministry resources, including sermons, lectures, and columns on many different topics at sermonaudio.com pscharf. Right now, Paul comes with a study that will transport you back to the time of the Reformation. So we're going to get right into our theme this evening. It's our second last time together uh, with tomorrow night being the end of the conference. And so we're talking about the places where Luther stood, remembering the Reformation. We've been through the five solas, and I just showed you another uh, message that I've posted online where you can go back through that if you weren't here with us on Sunday morning for Sunday school. We left off last night with the life and ministry of Dr. Martin Luther. We're just going to have a quick run back through a few of the, the closing slides that we covered to review quickly tonight. The early life of Luther, born November 10, 1483 in Eisleben. And we went through a storm with him, didn't we? Leaving Eisenach, uh, excuse me, leaving Erfurt, July 1515. Excuse me, I got that wrong again. 1505, leaving Eisenach, leaving the University of Erfurt, going through a thunderstorm, and we talked about Luther's sense of unfection and his sense of overwhelming despair that plagued and tormented his soul and how that came to a very acute point in that thunderstorm that day on July 2nd when he apparently had a thunderbolt strike the ground a lightning bolt strike the ground near him and he cried out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. And we talked about his initiation into the monastery there in Erfurt, the Augustinian monastery that he picked being the really the most stringent, not the most um, uh, respected, uh, but the most, uh, or, or I should say, not the one that would have the most clout, but the most uh, stringent, the most... Uh, disciplinary. He wanted to put himself through every means possible. He wanted to take every advantage of this opportunity. Being a monk, he is attempting to earn his favor before God. And we talked about some of the things he did to himself, and we talked about uh, his failure, really, at his first Mass with his father present because he was just overwhelmed with a sense of uh, unworthiness to stand before God and to consecrate the Mass, and to receive this ordination to the priesthood. And we left off with what he had done the night before his ordination, according to custom, lying prostrate on the floor over the grave in shape of a cruciform, uh, hands outstretched all night long. And it turns out this was the grave of a man named Johannes Zacharias, who was Hus's prosecutor at the Council of Constance in 1415 and uh, put Hus to death at the stake, burned for heresy. And this is the man that Luther is supposed to be drawing his spiritual power from here in this night 
before his ordination. And we left him uh, then in the, the library, although we don't know that this took place in the library, but with uh, Johann von Staupitz, his father confessor, who sometime after this uh, told him to just, Luther, uh, he said, you know, eat more food, get more rest, and love God, I believe were his words. And Luther said, love God. Sometimes I think I hate him. And that is when Staupitz picks Luther, perhaps for obvious reasons, on a number of levels, and sends him to lead a delegation. Him and another monk made an 800-mile journey to Rome. It would take them numerous weeks to go one leg of the journey and back. You can see on this placard here, it states that it was... uh, uh, November of 1510, and they return in March of 1511. So they're going to end up being in Rome out of all that for uh, probably just around a month. And uh, Luther uh, goes to Rome, and he thinks this is really his opportunity now. I mean, everything else has failed. Uh, but he thinks by going to Rome, this may finally be the solution, be the answer that he is looking for. Because just like viewing indulgences, there are so many possibilities in Rome of things you can do to take time off of purgatory, to do works that merit the, the, the favor of God, uh, even beyond that, drawing on the treasury of merit of the saints. There's all of these opportunities Luther hoped to worship in every church in Rome. Can you imagine that? He wanted to climb up the scale of sancta, the holy stairs up which Christ had ascended up to Pontius Pilate. Every step, would, he would kneel and kiss the step and say a, a rosary. And he believed that all of these things offered such hope and such potential. He was looking for the the cure for the unfecting him that he felt in the depths of his soul. And he went about doing all of these acts in Rome. And as he did, he grew more and more and more despondent and disillusioned. In fact, he finally hit bottom that he ever hit in his whole life when he came back from Rome. You say, what was the problem? Well, as he looked around Rome, he realized, he began to see a number of things. He saw that, you see, the priests in Rome, because it was a destination and many pilgrims came to Rome, and Luther said of himself, I was a mad pilgrim dashing all about the city. And there were, of course, many pilgrims there, and people would uh, believe that a a, uh, mass performed on on their behalf or on behalf of a departed loved one that took place in Rome was of special significance and importance. So they had these special chapels set up where priests, it uh, it was their occupation to say masses for the people that came, except they knew that these people who came to Rome, most of them didn't understand Latin, so they would speak uh, gibberish and nonsense in the place of the words, and just, in other words, uh, have fun, make light of the mass, and uh, just say ridiculous things, and they would say it so quickly 
so they could get people through like a, just a fast, you know, fast food version of the mass. Just get them through the line because they're making money. They're receiving payment for each mass they're saying. And so they would say to Luther, as he said the mass, these Roman priests would say, presto, presto, faster, faster. But that wasn't the worst thing Luther saw in Rome. He saw that there were, in fact, uh, well, houses of ill repute, brothels that were there purely for the benefit of the priests in Rome. And he saw that there was just every form of licentiousness and corruption imaginable. And then finally, in talking to someone, they sort of explained, took him aside and said, you know, Luther, uh, don't know what you were expecting to see here, but here's the truth. If there was a hell, it was told to him, then surely Rome was built upon it. And he was just completely devastated. He didn't know where else to turn after this trip was over and his return to Wittenberg. He was sent there with this other monk to deal with this controversy in the Augustinian order, and they attended those meetings and so forth. But as far as the trip itself, Luther was absolutely devastated. He's back in Erfurt, okay, at the Augustinian Monastery and Staupitz knows something has to change here in the life of Martin Luther. He puts him on the academic path and sends him to a, uh, a brand new university that is just starting to make a few headlines. Elector Frederick has started a university in the small city of Wittenberg, has about 2,500 people in population in the city at this time. Elector Frederick is very proud of this university. He's he started, and Staupitz sends Luther there to be professor, to get, first of all, get his doctorate and be on his way to professorship teaching philosophy in Wittenberg. And so Luther begins teaching in 1511, receives his doctorate of theology in 1512, and also his ministry continues. He begins, uh, becomes the priest at the town church, St. Mary's, which we keep talking about in uh, 1514. Here's just a couple of views from St. Mary's, the town church there. Here's a picture behind the altar, I believe still today as it was in Luther's time. They had artwork behind the altar as you walk around the back. Kind of interesting. Here's the baptistry we looked at the other day. Here's the pipe organ in the back of that church. Uh, we looked at the, uh, the anti-Jewish Artwork on the outside. Here's the outside of the church without without that shown. Uh, really nice building. Aside from that uh, concept, uh, and here's Luther's statue in Wittenberg, as it appears today, one of the more famous ones that you will see. What did Luther do in Wittenberg? As he's as he's teaching in the university, as he's preaching in the town church. He begins to lecture on the Bible. Staupitz wanted him to also teach Bible. And Luther said, it will be the death of me. And in one sense, he was right, wasn't he? He began lecturing on the Psalms, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, 
in the book of Hebrews. And as he was teaching the Psalms, he came to Psalm 22. And he read these words, which he knew were quoted by the Lord Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was completely baffled by that statement because he saw here that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he too felt unfect again. He felt a sense of despair, of complete and total separation from God. How can this be? He began to ponder that. He began to study, especially the books of Romans and Galatians, and to lecture on them. He came to call the book of Galatians, Meine Frau, my wife. This, of course, before he was married, which he will be later. But he uh, was just fascinated by these two books, and especially by one passage in the book of Romans, We've talked about this already, but we'll just revisit it because it's so vitally important. Romans 1, 16 and 17. These verses baffled him too at first. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of the gospel, is the power of God for, to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther thought, it's not the righteousness of God that I need. I stand condemned before a holy and righteous God who knows no sin. But then he came to realize. He thought about this further. He puzzled at it until it struck him that the verse is teaching that the righteousness of God here is not the holy righteous character of God before which we stand condemned. It's a righteousness that he supplies. As Paul develops in the books of Romans and Galatians, it's a righteousness, and in 2 Corinthians 5, which we'll talk about in a moment, it's a righteousness that God supplies to the account in the ledger of the one who believes from faith to faith, by faith alone. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. When we believe in Christ alone, by faith alone, God then takes the unworthy sinner who has no righteousness at all and applies to his account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, the great exchange, as Luther called it, of 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In fact, Luther had a prayer that he prayed and he said this to his students, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him and say, thou Lord Jesus art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and hast given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I was not. And Luther realized this truth of the gospel, and as it's been described, 
And I don't know, I talked to the college students on Sunday night, shared this illustration that's been widely used. It's one of those stories that if it's not true, it should have happened. But it's used to describe the discovery that Luther made as he would have still been living in the, in the monastery in Wittenberg at this time as a single man, a monk, professor, priest. And that monastery is going to be given to Luther as a wedding gift later uh, by Elector Frederick in 1525. But at this point, 10 years before that or so, he's lecturing on Romans in 1515-1516. Well, the story that I alluded to is told that Luther made this discovery in the blackness of night, in the middle of the night. And he took off running in exuberance when this came together with clarity in his mind and that he even ran up some steps and he missed a step and he tripped and he could have fell to his peril, but he reached out and he grabbed whatever he could and it was the rope. And it was the rope that led to the bell tower. And in the middle of the night, the bell was ringing throughout Wittenberg. As I said, if that story didn't happen, it should have. But here's what Luther did say about what he discovered. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. And here is a scene from the Wartburg Castle, which we'll talk about later. And I use it to illustrate the fact that Luther called Romans 1, 16, and 17 the very gate to paradise. Perhaps there's someone here tonight who needs to enter that gate to paradise just by trusting in Christ alone that he died in your place for your sins and rose again so you could have forgiveness of sin and eternal life by his grace alone, through faith alone. Now you understand the struggles that Luther has come through. You understand the resolution he's gained after all of these years And you understand now, if you've been with us, the historical backdrop of what is happening at this time. And you begin to understand why Luther is so distressed when he sees Dominican friar Johann Tetzel coming around town, not in Wittenberg, because Frederick has his own indulgence program, but on the other side of the Elbe River to sell these indulgences. And here's a picture of one. And so we've talked about what happened on October 31st, 1517, when Luther posted the 95 theses to the castle church door at Wittenberg. Uh, A month earlier, he had posted a similar set of theses, more provocative than these, but uh, it was against scholastic theology, which is a medieval theology that... um, Luther had never, he always criticized, and that would be a whole separate discussion, and we don't believe in scholastic theology today in our, in our realm, uh, and it's a, it's a subject that's best encapsulated with one simple illustration 
is the, is the one we've all heard, a question like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? Those were the kind of questions the scholastics debated. And if you ever, if you ever, when you were a kid in school, if you ever got put in the corner to wear a dunce hat, probably not, probably not anybody in this group, but uh, that's actually named after a real man, Duns Scotus, who was a scholastic theologian. So that's scholastic theolo- theology, way simplified in a nutshell. Okay, so in, in September 1517, Luther had posted his theses against scholastic theology, very provocative, but it went nowhere. Uh, Someone said, you know, as we, even as we talk about Wycliffe, as we talk about Hus, as we talk about these pre-reformers, or even what Luther did in September of 1517. You know, if you throw a match into a room, someone said, but there's no oxygen and no fuel, uh, the match is going to go out, right? But if you have a room full of fuel and a room full of oxygen and you throw that match and you've got a fire... And in the providence of God, the fire lit on October 31st, 1517. As I said, Luther's students took the theses down this time, translated them into German. They were in Latin, intended for a call to debate with other universities, the most prestigious of which was Leipzig, which we'll come back to. But they took these and sent them out to the masses And this was not about scholastic theology, even though that was maybe a more provocative subject in the in the in the in the bigger picture. But this was about things people could really understand: buying indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica, and as a result, get your loved one out of purgatory. In light of all the factors we've discussed that are coming together at this time, see a peasant farmer could look at that and say, "Oh." I've got a problem with that for any number of reasons, you see. And the fire is going to be lit now at this point. And uh, we've talked about Frederick. We'll come back to him further. Again, I'll just say it. If you weren't here with us, if there had never been a Frederick, you'd never have heard of Martin Luther. Uh, Here's the table at the uh, home in Germany. Uh, What was the monastery? What's given to Luther as a gift? Uh, it's all a visitor area now, uh, you know, a destination for, for tourism. Uh, here's the famous painting I've used several times, 1872, of Luther nailing the 95 Theses. Here are the doors as you see them today. Here are the doors with the window above them. We talked about Luther on the left side as you look at the cross holding his German Bible. Uh, Philip Melanchthon, who... We probably won't have time to get much about him. Let me say, as Timothy was to Paul, Melanchthon was to Luther. If there had never been a Melanchthon, Luther would never have accomplished what he did. Uh, He's holding the Augsburg Confession there beneath the cross. And as we know, we've gone through the story of these things, so I'm just going through these pictures very quickly here tonight. Here's a printing press in Wittenberg. Here's how uh, these pictures are actually from Worms. But when we visited Uh, In September of 2017, it was like a football game was coming to town. They had banners like this all around. I don't know how how heartfelt or how spiritual the motivation was, but it was quite amazing to see these things decorating the town, you know, for tourism's sake and so forth. And certainly October 31st began in earnest the proclamation of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Well, let's look at the aftermath of what happens now. 
All of a sudden, Luther has a career he never planned on, never dreamt of, never even wanted, and that is reformer. He's a faithful son of the mother church, by the way, at this point. He has no, if you would have asked him, Luther, are you going to leave and start a new church? He'd have looked at you and said, what? What are you talking about? There's only one church, and he wanted to bring reform. In fact, it really wasn't even that grandiose. He wanted to debate some of these almost peripheral issues, which were heartfelt to him because he had come to understand the reality of the gospel. But start another church? He never did leave to start another church. He was given the left foot of fellowship. They kicked him out to start another church. Okay? Uh, So keep some of those things in mind, too. Even though we've talked, and I believe Luther did have a dramatic conversion experience that was genuine, that was absolutely true and real, and yet, let me throw this in here at this point. If you'd have asked Luther even years later, looking back on his life, Luther, Dr. Luther, when did you become a Christian? You know what he'd say? When I was baptized as a baby. So there are conundrums about Martin Luther that we're going to start getting into more here in the last one and a half sessions of our time. Um, And tonight I'd like to get us up to the Vortberg Castle. And I'm afraid tomorrow night we're probably going to have to leave Luther in the castle. But rest assured, if you have to be left anywhere, that's a wonderful place to be left. So... You know, we may have to leave him there because I want to end, or I don't want to end without covering a topic I've brought up, Luther and the Jewish people, which is far more complicated and far more amazing than we've talked about so far. Okay, so you'll want to come back for that. But here's uh, some very important things happen now. Luther is all of a sudden, okay, uh, he may not want to be a reformer, but the... uh, the church views him as one, and they have. Uh, there's, he has some explaining to begin. Uh, starting at Heidelberg in May of 15, we're going to go through this in outline form, then we'll come back to some of the things in pictures in a little bit more detail. Heidelberg Disputation, Luther there for the first time debates a man named Dr. Johann Eck. We'll come back to him at Leipzig. If you remember the acronym HAL, H-A-L, Heidelberg, Augsburg, Leipzig, okay, the three big uh, events in 1518 to 1519. Luther's called to explain himself at Heidelberg. As a result of that, which I said we'll come back to that a little bit more yet, but right now in just an outline form, as a result of being uh, his, what happened at Heidelberg, where Luther represented himself well, but of course he's starting to now catch the attention of the church and the empire. Okay, And so he's summoned to Rome, August 7, 1518. And Frederick, now this is uh, the first time Frederick is going to take a public stand for Luther. He has reasons to do so. For one thing, Luther is drawing students to his university. Nobody else on the university faculty has concerns about Luther. They're all with him. And Frederick kind of likes this. Ah, I've got this young, up-and-coming, controversial professor. Um, You're not going anywhere, Martin Luther. I'm going to be watching over you, Frederick is thinking. And so Frederick says, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to Rome. (laughs) 
Uh, Luther asked Frederick through Spalatin, his go-between, can we have this on German soil? Frederick thought, that's a great idea. I don't want you going to Rome. I don't want you leaving Germany. I don't want you leaving, you know, outside of the, the close area. Um, that appeals to Frederick not only as the, uh, as the one who has begun this university, but as one who is uh, tapping into this growing nationalism we talked about. Hey, uh, no, we don't want our professors going to stand trial in Rome. If, they have, if we have a problem, we're going to deal with it here in Germany. And, and see, and this has a populist element to it that attracts the common man as well. Uh, and all these things are happening, coming together at a similar time. So Luther goes to Augsburg to explain his views. He's really looking for a debate that he never has. We'll come back to that. I don't have pictures from Augsburg, but we'll come back to it. That's October of 1518. All right. Now, how many believe the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord? January 12, 1519, Maximilian, emperor, dies. This is huge. Because you don't just have the next day a phone-in meeting where you have plans for a new election, right? This is going to take some time. This really slows things down now with any attention the empire had to give to Martin Luther. Similar things happen throughout this time with regard to the papal office. And uh, they're going to look back later, both church and civil authorities, and say, why didn't we just kill this guy immediately? But it was out of their hands. God, God was moving, keeping them providentially from acting against Luther. Now, we are going to have Charles V, grandson of Maximilian, uh, much more, much younger, obviously, much more cosmopolitan leader. He spoke numerous languages. He was a man of the world. Uh, he was a, a ruler of other territories already at this point in his life. He comes into the empire on June of 1519, so it takes about a half a year to fill the position. They Actually, there was a move to recruit Frederick to be the new emperor. He didn't want any part of it. He's one of seven electors who elects Charles. He's a key vote. He's got some sway over Charles. Uh, here's a picture of Maximilian. By the way, here's a picture of Charles. Now, are you ready for a uh, complicated family, uh, what would be the word? Family ties, the old sitcom, I don't know if that's it here. Uh, Here's how we get to Charles. Now, I want you to see a couple of things here. On the top right, Maximilian's his grandfather. Uh, on the top left, guess who's his other grandfather and grandmother? Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. Guess who their daughter is? His aunt, Catherine of Aragon, first wife of? Henry VIII. See how all these things, this web of complications, keep that all on the sticky side of your mind, friends. We're going to come back to it. All right, here is Emperor Charles then again. 
And about the same time he comes into office, Luther goes to Leipzig. Remember, H-A-L, Heidelberg, Augsburg, Leipzig. The three great debates that sort of set the stage for what the big events to come after that. And what are those big events? June 15th, 1520, as a result of what happened at Heidelberg, Augsburg, Leipzig, the Pope, Leo, uh, promulgates the papal bull. Now, when I say that, nobody laugh. That's not a derogatory term. That's an official term, the bullum. It's, this is the letter of excommunication. All right. Luther receives it October 10th with 60 days to respond. So 60 days later, he burns the papal bull. And we'll talk about that. That leads to Luther at Worms, April of 1521, and Luther then at the Wartburg Castle, May of 1521 to February of 1522. As I said, that's probably where we'll have to end the timeline, the chronology tomorrow night. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You've all heard, I think, we have an election next Tuesday, right? Everyone know that? How many know that whoever's elected, God's in control, right? And we see it all through the world here. Let's take a moment think of what's happening up north in England. Uh, we got Henry VIII doing his thing up there. How many like Henry VIII? You know he had six wives. If you're ever an after-dinner speaker, uh, you can use this line and just say, you know, don't worry, as Henry said to each of his six wives, which we'll be thinking about in a moment, I won't be keeping you long, you know. Uh, <laughs> Henry implemented a reformation of convenience up there in, in England. Uh, in 1521, the same year that Luther stands at Worms and goes to Wartburg, he gets into the fray here. He writes a book named In Defense of the Seven Sacraments. He's later going to try to get on Luther's good side. So he's on kind of both sides of this. We don't have time to go into Henry's and the whole English Reformation. This is just a little brief rabbit trail because it's important. It's going to be very important for our understanding. Uh, Pope Leo, as a result, names Henry VIII Defender of the Faith, a title still worn now by King Charles to this day. Did you know that? Uh, Henry declares himself the supreme head of the church, 1534, and implements this Reformation of Convenience, a Protestant Church of England, which is really the Roman Catholic Church with a new name, under the control of the king, not the pope. Henry says, forget the pope, I'll be my own pope. Why did he say that? We'll see it in a moment. By the way, later Elizabeth, uh, his daughter, will call herself the supreme governor of the church in 1558, after England for a while reverts to Catholicism, then comes back under Elizabeth to Protestantism. Here are the English monarchs. Henry, his son Edward, Lady Jane Grey ruled for about a week. Bloody Mary, his daughter, then Elizabeth, who takes the country back to Protestantism as after Mary had taken it to Roman Catholicism. And then King James, who's famous for the King James Version. What else is he famous for? He threw some great people out of England, namely the pilgrims that we'll remember this month. Okay? 
Obviously, again, we, we're not going into detail on all these things. There's Henry in all his glory standing before us. And here are his six wives. And there's a little jingle you can remember to at least know what happened to them. If you see it down the middle there of the columns. Catherine, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr. Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Okay. So, Catherine, the reason Henry wants a divorce from Catherine is because she can't have a son. Henry blames her, says we never were married because Catherine was espoused to his brother who died before they were married. And the Pope, who had previously given a special dispensation to Henry, so he could marry Catherine, is not about to give him a special dispensation so he can divorce Catherine, especially when Catherine is the aunt of Charles V. You keeping all this straight? By the way, Catherine's parents, Ferdinand and Isabella, are the greatest supporters the Pope has in Europe. And he has tension with Charles. He's not about to grant Henry a divorce. All this in the background, you see. All these things going on. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Meanwhile, Luther's running around writing his books. Okay. We're just going to zip through this real fast. The other English Reformation is uh, the Reformation of Conviction. Going back, we could date it to Wycliffe, then Tyndale. Who, by the way, spends time with Luther? What would we give for a set, a set of cassette tapes of the conversations that Luther had with Tyndale, the two men who gave us our modern Bible? All right, the White Horse Inn in Cambridge, all these great men, the Oxford Martyrs, Ridley and Latimer, the English Reformation is another entire story. But we're going to end tonight going back to HAL. Ready? Heidelberg, Augsburg, Leipzig. At Heidelberg, when we visited there on the last day of our tour, uh, this young man, he was a student at Oxford pursuing a Master of Arts in Reformation um, uh, art, uh, art, or uh, what was Reformation um, a drama, something like that, at Oxford. Uh, and there you see him in costume, in character. Uh, I mentioned this the other night to the college students, if any of you were at that meeting. This is the world's largest wine vat there in Heidelberg, he showed us. Uh, for us fundamentalists, it's, we know it's the world's largest grape juice container, right? But anyway, here's the, the castle, the Heidelberg castle that still stands, the remnants of it. It's basically a large wall. Uh, Heidelberg's a beautiful vacation city. Lots and lots of people from... Uh, China and the East come to vacation in Heidelberg, we're told. It's just an incredible city. I'll never forget Heidelberg because I walked through the entire city lengthwise and found McDonald's on that last day of our trip. But here is the ruins of the wall. Here's uh, above the castle. Uh, here's a, I used this picture for an illustration of Romans 1, the degradation of the depravity of man, if you think of those steps going down. 
that's another sermon, but I want to tell you about this wall that still stands to, the, to this day. It, the story is told, a minority view of the, of the origin of the great Reformation hymn that we have sung here, or heard a couple of times this week, A Mighty Fortress. Um, the story is told that during a break in the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther was sharing the gospel with the prince there in Heidelberg and explaining and, and attempting to convince him of the truth of the gospel. And the prince looked to, at Luther and he pointed to that wall and he said, you see that wall, my, I don't need that gospel of which you speak, my trust is in that wall. And the story is told that that's the original seed and it may play into ultimately the fact that Luther sat down and wrote a hymn and said, A mighty fortress is our God. Now I think when Luther wrote that hymn based on Psalm 46, he was thinking clearly of the Wartburg Castle as well. And we'll come back to that later. Well, Augsburg, I love to talk about Augsburg because it's a funny story of what happened there. This is, you remember, the meeting that Luther had on German soil instead of going to Rome. And he wanted to go... By the way, at Heidelberg, Luther was first, first time there, he's confronted by Dr. Eck. And he is being forced through all of these disputations into the question, what is your authority? How can you, Luther, say these things as one monk against a thousand years of church history and theology? And that's what Cardinal Cajetan, C-A-J-E-T, I'll get it out, C A. J-E-T-A-N, Cajetan, Cardinal Cajetan. We'll never forget him. Uh, Luther wanted this real scholarly discussion with Cajetan. And he wanted to talk about the papal pronouncements regarding purgatory and, and the treasury of merit and indulgences. In other words, church authority. And he wanted to... He, he was becoming convicted that our authority is the scripture alone. These abuses, these issues were just an evidence of a, the issue of authority. And each, you know, the, the, each, your take on those issues flowed from your basis of authority. And Luther is developing the conviction that it's the scriptures alone. Cajetan didn't want to have any of this discussion. He just asked Luther to recant. Uh, he just simply uh, demanded that Luther recant. And he told Luther, there's no, there's no debate here. The Pope is above the scripture. Luther replied, his holiness abuses scripture. Cajetan said, I don't want to see you again until you recant. Now this is the funny part of the story. And I'm going to say it in the nice way, since we're in church here, in a Baptist church, okay? But here was the line, if, if you ever need a chuckle, you can remember what Luther said about Cajetan. He said he was no more fit to handle my case, and here's the way I'll, I'll say it the nice way, than a donkey would be to play a harp. <laughs> so he was comparing Cajetan to a donkey trying to play a harp, Okay. Now, Staupitz was with Luther at Augsburg. And interestingly, after this meeting, Staupitz released Luther of his monastic vows. Isn't that amazing? 
I think we'll see Staupitz in heaven, Frederick also. We'll get to talk to them about all these things. Now, we, gotta, we need to end soon, but we've got to get through Leipzig really quickly at least. July 4th through 14th, an 11-day debate. Can you imagine? Luther and Karlstadt, who we haven't talked about, he's the academic superior of Luther at Wittenberg. And it's going to be at Leipzig that Luther and Karlstadt separate. Luther separates himself from Karlstadt and becomes the main leader, it's absolutely clear, in this new Reformation. Karlstadt is going to ultimately become an Anabaptist. He's a really interesting character, too. But uh, Leipzig, uh, we have Dr. Eck. What better name could you have for a villain than Dr. Eck, right? He's going to accuse Luther of being, guess what? He said, you're a Hussite. Remember what they said to Huss at the Council of Constance? You're a Wycliffeite. Remember Huss's prophecy of Luther? Here's Huss and Luther intertwined. Huss's prophecy. Luther's ordination lying on Zachariah's grave. X charge at Leipzig. What does Luther do during a break in the debate? Amazingly, they have some of Huss's writings in the library. They're still preserved. They haven't been burned. Luther reads them. He comes back and he shocks the whole crowd. He says, we are all Hussites without knowing it. And Eck can't believe what he's hearing. Now there's going to be more intertwining of their lives because in 1521, Luther, like Hus, was called to the Council of Constance. Luther's going to be called to Worms. And his friends are going to say, Martin, don't go to Worms. Remember Jan Hus. They promised him safe passage, and then he was burned at the stake. And what did Luther respond? If you know his hymn, this will ring familiar to you. He said, though there be as many devils as the tiles on the roof in Worms, I will go to Worms. And I can tell you, I will never forget riding the bus into Worms into this very day. Every house has a tiled roof. If, if, though there be as many devils as the tiles on the roofs, I will go to Worms. When Luther gets there, he sees that someone has written on the gate, Luther, the Saxon Huss. All right, Luther scholar Karl Truman, he says, in my mind, Leipzig is a watershed moment for Luther. I think it's the moment when he starts to eclipse Karlstadt. We talked about that. It's also the moment when the real issue, here it is, of the Reformation, the issue of authority comes to the fore. And Luther is forced to consider for himself or his own convictions and to declare it is Scripture alone. All right, so we're going to end here with just a couple quick slides to, to finish us off tonight. December 10th, 1520, the Luther Oak at Elster Gate. This is at Wittenberg. This is 60 days after Luther receives the papal bull. Let me just read to you the opening words of that papal bull that uh, the Pope had written up and sent off 
uh, to Luther. This is his bill of excommunication. And here's what he said about Martin Luther. Uh, the The bull is called exerge domine, which is from the Latin for the opening words of the papal bull. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. Arise, O Lord, exerge domine. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter, and consider the case of the Holy Roman Church, the mother of all churches, consecrated by thy blood. Arise, O Paul. The Pope proclaimed that publicly in St. Peter's from the papal chancery on July 24, 1520. And it also makes an issue of the authority because it claims the authority is the Pope, not the scriptures. It doesn't even deal with the other concerns. It real, they realize now, the Pope realizes, the issue is one of authority. Who is the authority? Luther is saying it's scripture alone. He and the rest of the faculty and the students have this wonderful celebration, December 10th, They burn books of canon law. They have this big fire going, and Luther steps out of the shadows and throws the papal bull dramatically into the fire. All right? And that's going to land him at Worms. So we'll pick up there tomorrow night. We'll think about Worms and the Wartburg, and then we're going to at least talk about Luther and the Jewish people. God bless you. Thank you so much.